Zechariah chapter 9, the coming king. Um, This chapter actually divides out very nicely into three sections. The first section is the first eight verses. The second section is verses 9 and 10. And then the last section is verses 11 through 17. In the first eight verses of Zechariah chapter 9, there's actually a word of judgment. A word of judgment from the Lord on the nations that surround Israel. And yet, mixed in with that message of judgment is a precious promise of grace. I want us to just follow along with me as I read these eight verses tonight. An oracle of the word of the Lord. By the way, that word oracle simply means a prophetic utterance. A, it's a responsibility being carried. A, 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 you could even say a burden, if you will. Something that God has placed on Zechariah to share with his people. Any of us who've walked with the Lord long enough know that there are times in our life where he gives us a responsibility, something that he wants us to carry out And that we do not get that weight lifted off of us until we sort of discharge that duty. An oracle of the word of the Lord concerning the land of Hadrach with its focus on Damascus. The eyes of all humanity, especially the tribes of Israel, are looking toward the Lord. As those of Hamath also, which adjoins Damascus and Tyre and Sidon though they consider themselves to be very wise. Tyre built herself a fortification and piled up silver like dust and gold like the mud of the streets. Nevertheless, the Lord will evict her and shove her fortifications into the sea. She will be consumed by fire. Ashkelon will see and be afraid. Gaza will be in great anguish, as will Ekron. For their hope, will have been dried up. Their expectation, their object of their hope, of their confidence will be dried up because we understand that anything or anyone that we have confidence or hope in other than the Lord is not going to come through in that day. Gaza will lose her king and Ashkelon will no longer be inhabited. A mongrel people, literally a people who have lost their identity. And my goodness, could we not say that today about many people in the world? A lost identity or no identity people will live in Ashdod. For I will greatly humiliate the Philistines. I will take away their abominable religious practices. Then those who survive will become, notice, a community of believers in our God. Like a clan in Judah, and Ekron will be like the Jebusites. Then I will surround, I will literally encamp. It's a military term. I will encamp around my temple to protect it like a guard, like an army on watch. From anyone crossing back and forth, so no one will cross over against them anymore as an oppressor. For now, I myself have seen it. The first eight verses of this chapter, of this passage, again, is primarily a word of judgment against the nations that surround Israel. But here's something very interesting. 
The nations that are addressed here in this chapter are not the nations that surround Israel now. They are not even the nations that surrounded Israel in Zechariah's day when he was prophesying. These are the nations that were actually in the land, in the promised land, when Joshua and the people of Israel were supposed to go in and drive them out. So think about what God here is saying in this prophecy from Zechariah. What he is saying is this. My will and my plan for my people was that this would be your land. And you never completely or fully obeyed me and drove out these people. And because you did not obey me fully, these people have been a thorn in your side throughout your history. That's one thing. And the second lesson we can learn from this is this. When something is part of God's plan or God's will, even if we fail to complete it, God will. There will come a day where God will either get somebody else to do it, or He will do it Himself. And that's exactly what we're seeing here in Zechariah chapter 9. God said, you didn't do this the first time, so I'm going to do it. And when I do it, I'm going to... I'm going to do it right. And here's why that should be an encouragement to us. God is a God of finishing things. He's a God of completing things. In fact, we're encouraged by that even in our own lives when Paul even says to the Philippians, I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will complete it. He will finish it. That's the way God is. When God start, starts out doing something or sets out to do something, He is a finisher God. He makes sure it's done to the very end and completed. And when you and I set out to do something, especially if we know or believe that this is of God, then it is up to us to finish it and complete it. Because if we don't, and it truly is God's will, then God will get somebody else to finish it or complete it. Or God will do it Himself, just as He did here. Now the other thing, though, that's really cool about this first part, even though, again, it's a word of judgment upon the nation surrounding Israel, is you probably noticed this in verse 7, that those, even in those pagan nations, if you will, that were worshiping false gods, some of them, the light bulb came on, and notice, they became a community of believers in our God. And this is where grace is seen even in the midst of judgment. In other words, God extends grace even before He brings judgment. We've seen that throughout the Bible. And then God even extends grace during judgment. I mean, one of the most, if maybe the most dramatic illustration of that is that there will be people who come to know the Lord as their Savior during the seven-year tribulation period like the worst time on earth. Judgment of God being poured out upon the nations. But there will be people who come to know the Lord. Because there's always grace extended from God, even in the midst of judgment. I mean, think about a couple of examples of this. How about the example of Rahab in the book of Joshua? Where before... The walls of Jericho and the city of Jericho fell. 
those who turned to God in faith were spared. God made sure there was a way out. God would have made a way out for anybody besides Lot and his family in Sodom and Gomorrah before. Anybody at all could have gotten on the the ark with Noah if they wanted to, and God gave them plenty of time to do so. I mean, over and over and over again, God sent a reluctant prophet Jonah to the Ninevites. And there was a great revival there. And so throughout even the Old Testament, God wasn't just trying to reach out to his people, the Jews. He was always trying to use his people to reach out to the Gentiles. He wanted to be a light to the nations. And he wanted his people to be a light to the nations. And God always, always, always extends grace, even during judgment. And so, he's going to come, Zechariah says, and he's going to clean house. And the reason he's got to do that is because the king is coming. And before the king can set up his kingdom on the earth, the other kingdoms have to be wiped to the side. And we see that in the book of Revelation. We see that in the Psalms, where before Jesus can come and rule and reign on the earth, that the kingdoms and nations in rebellion against God have to be set aside. So that's the first part, the first eight verses. And there's a lot there, but let's move on. We come to this part. And this part is all about the coming Messiah. Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is legitimate or righteous and victorious, humble and riding on a donkey, on a young donkey, the foal of a female donkey. Now, you know that this describes the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem a week before he was crucified. In fact, Jesus himself, as he's directing his disciples to go get the donkey, is quoting from Zechariah 9 here. So even Jesus says, this referred to me. But if you don't mind writing in your Bible or marking in your Bible, this is what I would encourage you to do. I would encourage you to draw a line after verse 9 and before verse 10, for this reason. Verse 9 is referring to the first advent of Christ, the first coming of Jesus, when he came in humility to die on the cross for our sins. But verse 10 is actually describing his second advent or his second coming, you see. You see, in his first coming... He is coming as the king, but then notice it says he's humble. He rides in on a donkey to present himself to his people. And this is is much of why many people did not see him as their king. They did not recognize him as their king. They did not acknowledge him because he was coming to primarily offer peace to individual hearts. He was primarily coming to deal with spiritual issues and and to, to offer salvation. But the second time he comes, then he's not coming to deal with spiritual matters. He's coming to take over the world and to set up his kingdom. And that's why, can I even say, even in these prophecies, that's why I think the Jews, because they 
they were not really in tune with what God was trying to get across, they took verses 9 and 10 as all at the same time. In other words, that's why when they thought Christ was coming, they thought he was coming that time to set up his kingdom. And when he chose not to to buck the Romans and the Roman government and to challenge the, the Roman government and to overthrow them and to set up the kingdom, the Jews rejected him. Because they said, well, you, you can't be our king. You can't be our Messiah. Because they did not differentiate and, and see that the Scriptures taught that there would be two separate comings. One to deal with spiritual matters, to offer peace to a heart, and to, to do salvation. And the second time to set up His kingdom. Notice verse 10. I will remove the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be removed. Then he will announce peace to the nations. His dominion will be from sea to sea and from the Euphrates River to the ends of the earth. You see, the Messiah here, when he comes the second time, will take away the engines of war. And the second time, instead of offering peace to our hearts, he's going to offer, notice that phrase in verse 10, peace to the nations. It's exactly what Isaiah said in Isaiah chapter 2 when he says when Christ comes back and sets up his kingdom, they will beat their swords into plowshares and they will put their spears as pruning hooks and they will never train for war anymore. No more war. That's what will happen when Christ sets up his kingdom. That's Zechariah 9.10. But Zechariah 9.9 is the first coming of Jesus when he comes as the humble servant. By the way, I think it's something very important for us to remember in our life as we try to live for the Lord that the Lord did conquer the first time he came. It's not like, well, Jesus didn't conquer anything. He wasn't victorious the first time he came. So it's like he sort of failed the first time around and he's going to come the second time and be victorious. No, no. He conquered the first time. He was victorious the first time, but he was victorious through being a selfless servant. And when you, if you and I are going to make an impact and influence in this world, We need to do it the same way that Jesus did it, as a selfless servant. That's how he made the impact. It wasn't through, you know, human might. It wasn't through human power. It was through him laying down his life and loving others. That's how he made the impact. That's how he won victory. See, they, the humans were looking for some physical, material, tangible victory as far as some kind of warfare and battle, but that's not why he came the first time. Then something else before we move on. This just hit me like a bolt of lightning. I, in fact, I was sharing this with Nicole before, before tonight. Go back up to verse 9. The, the prophet Zechariah says to the people of God, Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion, and then shout, daughter of Jerusalem. By the way, let me say this first. Those phrases, daughter of Zion and daughter of Jerusalem, are reminding the people of God of how tender of a love and compassion He has for them when He calls them His daughter. 
In fact, it's really cool that this Hebrew word is very much related to a word that was used earlier on in the book of Zechariah, chapter 2, verse 8, where God calls his people the apple of his eye. That's exactly what he's doing here. He's basically saying, I love you like you were my own daughter. But then, notice, they are called to worship. They are called to praise. They are called to rejoice. And by the way, this word rejoice means to get very excited. Isn't it sad that God's people don't get very excited? And yet, the king has come and the king is coming. But that's what Zechariah says is my message from God to you. It's this oracle, this burden, this prophetic utterance that God wanted me to share with you is that you should be in an attitude of always being excited because your king is coming. Sometimes even hard to get Christians excited. And the word shout means to make a joyful noise. We even see that in the Psalms a lot. And, of course, the word rejoice as well. We can get excited at sporting events, and we can get excited at so many other things and celebrations on a human level, but we need to learn to get excited about God and the things of God and the fact that we know God and God knows us and our name is written in the book of life and our King is coming. But this is what I love, too. This call to worship was 600 years before Jesus would show up. So think about it. It's not like God is saying, now as my people, when this promise is fulfilled, now that'll give you fuel to worship me. Or like us many times, you know, we're praying about something and then when we get the answer to our prayer that we want, then we go, oh God, I need to praise you. I need to worship you. Notice what God is saying God is saying that, no, as you wait in faith, even though he hasn't come yet, as you wait in faith, because if you truly believe, if you truly have faith, then you know he's coming. It's not a matter of if, it's just a matter of when. That you, as a believer in God, can worship me and can get very excited about what I have promised is going to come. But even though it hasn't happened yet. You see, fulfillment, should never be the fuel for our worship. Faith should be the fuel for our worship. Which is why as Christians we are taught to walk by faith. Why God says without faith it is impossible to please me. Because our worship should be fueled by our faith. If we truly believe in the Word of God and the promises of God, then even when we haven't seen it yet, we should be filled with worship and praise and get excited about the things that God said will happen because we know they will. In fact, I think, Nicole, we need to do a series on this. A whole series on faith. Because I think when God's people learn about faith, that, that really is fuel for our worship. If when we learn to truly take hold of the promises of God and take hold of what God has said, then we've got something to praise God and worship God about and get excited about every moment of the day. There's always something if we believe it. If we trust in it, if we have confidence in it. So I love that. Six, 600 years, they were to be getting very excited about the fact that their king was coming. 
At the time, they didn't know how long it was going to be till their king was coming, but we know, looking back on it, it was 600 years from the prophecy of Zechariah here in Zechariah 9 till Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Rejoice, your king is coming. And then the last part of this passage or chapter, beginning in verse 11. We now have our attention cast even further into the future, if you will. Where God's people, we learn in this section of the chapter, will be His instruments in this cosmic conflict that will sort of initiate and establish the kingdom of God in this world. And more than that, they will also be precious ornaments that display His beauty to the world. If there's two things I want you to take away from verses 11 through 17 tonight as far as how it relates to us, God sees His people both as conquerors and as crowns. That's not where I want to start, though. I want to start in verse 14. Because God is actually the main combatant here in these verses. He is the warrior God. Notice what it says. Then the Lord will appear above them, and His arrow will shoot forth like lightning. The Lord God will blow the trumpet and will sally. The word means march. March forth on the southern storm winds. God, a warrior God. As soon as I read that and was reminded of that, I couldn't help but think of one of my favorite verses out of the Old Testament, just back a few pages in the book of Zephaniah, chapter 3, verse 17. The Lord your God is in your midst. He is a warrior who can deliver. He takes great delight in you. He renews you by His love. He shouts for joy over you. A warrior. You see, isn't it interesting, too, that Verses 9 and 10 of this great chapter is a hinge that swings back and forth between the other two passages because you've got judgment and sort of conflict in the first eight verses and you've got combat and battle and war and all that in in 11 through 17. You go, how does 9 and 10 fit in? Well, because... God wants to offer peace through His Son, Jesus Christ. But if one rejects Jesus Christ, then guess what? Here comes judgment. And God doesn't want to go to war with anyone. In fact, the New Testament teaches God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But if God is forced to, He is a warrior God who will make sure that His will is established on this earth, which is why He teaches His own people to pray, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. And one day He will come as the warrior God. And by the way, He also, as we're going to see here tonight, takes up for His own people too. And stands up for them. So the the main sort of personage in verses 11 through 17, don't miss it, it's not us, the people of God. It is God. But what we need to be sure that we don't miss is the role of God's people in the victory of God. You see, God's people are looked at as conquerors. As the Lord marches forth, the weapons of His warfare are His own people. 
We're not merely bystanders in some conflict. We're combatants in the Lord's army. Notice what he says in verse 11, 12, and 13. Moreover, as for you, because of our covenant relationship secured with blood, I will release your prisoners from the waterless pit. Return to the stronghold, you prisoners, with hope. Today I declare that I will return double what was taken from you. I will bend notice Judah as my bow. I will load the bow with Ephraim, my arrow. I will stir up your sons, Zion, against yours, Greece, and I will make you, Zion, like a warrior's sword. Notice what God is saying. My people are my instruments of war. Judah's my bow. Ephraim's my arrow. The people of Zion are my sword. We need to remember that. Even in the New Testament age, as as New Testament Christians, sometimes we forget we're in a battle every day. And and, and this should even correct this, this passivity and indifference that we see in the church today where people are simply content to sort of be passengers on the the church bus rather than engaged as soldiers in this cosmic conflict of good against evil. Isn't that why in the New Testament we hear words like fight the good fight and we wrestle not against flesh and blood? We're in a battle. We're in a conflict. And God wants to use His people as the instruments of the war. In fact, you remember, even in the Psalms, God even tells parents, I give you children to be my arrows. Even I want them to be my offensive weapons in this battle between good and and evil. God always saw his people that way. God saw the Jews that way. And God sees us that way. We are to be conquerors, you see. But then I love this. Look at verse 15. We are also a crown or an ornament of a crown. The Lord who rules over all will guard them And they will prevail and overcome with sling stones. Then they will drink and will become noisy like drunkards, full like the sacrificial basin or like the corners of the altar. God says, it's okay to party when you win the battle. It's okay. Notice God God didn't say, you know, you just... Don't get excited, you know. Don't rejoice. No, he says, there's going to be joy. On that day, I love this, the Lord their God will deliver them as the flock of His people. And here's the part. For they are the precious stones of a crown sparkling over His land. How precious and fair. Grain will make the young men flourish and new wine the young women. You see, Zechariah is reminding God's people that we become adornments. 
manifesting and displaying to the world the beauty and the majesty and the grace and the glory of our conquering warrior God. We are to make His greatness known to the world. We are to shine like the ornaments of a crown. That's the way God sees His people. And that's why Zechariah is sharing this message with his people. Because remember, they're still in the process of building the temple. They don't see themselves as conquerors. They don't see themselves as a crown. They still may feel defeated and discouraged. And God says, where's your faith? It's not going to be like this forever. You've got to believe and trust in me. You've got to begin to rejoice because your king is coming. And you need to live every day as if your king is coming. And that you know the king. And that you're related to the king. And that his victories will be your victories. The challenges that he overcomes will be the challenges you overcome. The obstacles that he overcomes will be the obstacles you overcome. So you can see how God wants to send this prophetic utterance to his people to sort of stir them and say, man, we've got to get back to the work. We've got to get focused. We've got to get ready for the king. Now, obviously, this was addressed to a people who was waiting on his first coming. But here's how you and I can apply the very same principles because we sit now as the people of God, not waiting on His first coming, but waiting on the King to come the second time. And the advantage that you and I have is we already know what He did the first time. He conquered sin and hell and death and the devil and all of that and brought victory to us as His people who believe in Him by faith. We have the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. We're just waiting for the king to come back now and set up his kingdom that we can be a part of. So how much more should we be a people who get very excited and make joyful noises and rejoice in the Lord always? And again, I say rejoice. To not live as if the king hasn't secured us victory, As I shared before, we as Christians should never fight for victory. The victory has already been won. We fight from victory. In fact, we even sang about it tonight when we sang about the fact that on the cross it was said by Jesus, it is finished. It's one Greek word, telestoi. It means it's done, it's completed, it's finished, it's over. Jesus won. (laughs) And we're just waiting now for the warrior God, the victor, the King of kings and Lord of lords to return. So I hope in some way this will encourage you as well. See yourself as God sees you, as his people. You are a precious individual to God. Even if you're a male, he still views you with tender love. He called his people the daughters of Zion because he wanted them to know about 
there's an intimate relationship that he has with his people. And he loves us very, very much. And that he views us through him, the mighty warrior God, as both conquerors and as a crown. Let's pray. God, we thank you so very much for, Lord, just knowing the right words to say just when we need to hear it. And so, God, I pray tonight that something that was said here tonight, Lord, was just what some of these folks needed to hear, needed to be reminded of, so that they could be strengthened and and built up and encouraged to, to get back into the battles of life. To realize that, as we even talked about several weeks ago in John, Jesus said, in the world, we will have trouble and suffering. But Jesus said to his followers, take courage, I have overcome the world. Greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. So Lord, tonight, I I pray that we would realize the victory that we have in you and that we can live in that victory every day if we choose to. Help us to see, Lord, too, that as we live this life, engaged in these battles, if you will, that you want us to be your instruments in your hands, used by you, to gain victories and to win battles and to take more territory for you, to drive back the enemy, to assault the gates of hell that will not prevail upon your church, and to take instead of a a defensive strategy, instead instead of living in fear and retreat and stepping back, God, help us to step forward and step up in you and take new ground for your kingdom, with you, God. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Guys, thanks. We'll see you next week.